Welcome to the Business Addicts Podcast, where the stakes are high, talk is cheap, and results are on the other side of commitment. Hosted by a former addict, myself, and I'm his wife, Jamie. We uncover addicts' mindsets, showing that the talents you've created in your struggle will be the superpowers you leverage to heal your deepest wounds. Listen to former addicts share stories of how they've flipped the switch, including insights into how much we can believe in ourselves. For those of you affected by addiction, we support your desire to help the addict in your life by raising the stakes and creating emotional barriers. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Business Addicts Podcast. We're excited to have a guest again this episode. I'm going to introduce Kimberly Krieger. Kimberly, we've been spending uh, time trying to get our schedules aligned because it seems we're both very busy. I'm excited that we're finally here and we get to have this conversation. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me on. It's an honor to be here. Great. Well, let's start with the standard, you know, who are you question going back to your childhood. Where did you come from? What's your background? Uh, anything you'd like to share with us along that line? So my childhood was probably mostly typical at first, um, raised in the suburbs in a small Wisconsin town with two parents, two sisters, and, um, you know, life was pretty good. And then when I was about 10, my parents got divorced and life was very, very different after that. Um, being raised by a single mom, my mom became a waitress to provide for us. And um, anybody in that industry knows you make the most tips at night. So there were a lot of nights that we either had babysitters or once we were, we were older, we were home alone a lot. So um, very, very different from being raised in a family where mom made, you know, a meat and potatoes meal every night and dad came home after work. Um, and it really set me on a course of, um, I will just call it self-destruction. I had a lot of anger over what happened in my home. And um, of course, being a child, um, you know, that really didn't have a chance to get processed in a healthy way. So I began to uh, rebel against my parents and society in general in middle school and got into lots of trouble. And by the time I was 16, I was pregnant and um, I had been using and abusing drugs and alcohol for several years. Um, the, the relationship I was in that I got um, pregnant in, the, the boyfriend was abusive, but I didn't tell anybody. So there was a lot of things going on for me at a really young age. Yeah, that makes sense that uh, just like all uh, like any of us that are have some type of trauma in life, it seems like we have a common thread of of something at home that uh, you know contributed to destruction really <laughs> right yep, yep. Our, so I know you also wrote a book and I, I have not read the book um, I, Jamie I think has gone into it, but just giving you an opportunity to uh, highlight that book and and anything you'd like to say about that. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the book is called Free, and um, the subtitle is Eight Graves, Seven Days, and One Heart Healed by Love. And the book really chronicles a one-week period where God had invited me to go back to some of those places where 
I was, um, you know, wounded emotionally in my life or where I had great loss or great grief and um, kind of called them graves, even though only two of those places were actual graves. Um, but the Lord was showing me that those were places where um, things had died in me or in my life that he wanted to resurrect. And um, he also wanted to show me who he was for me in those places in those eight graves. And so chapter one is about my childhood. It's called the place where you were abandoned. And it goes on to kind of take the reader through probably the most significant um, things that happened to me, uh, mostly not great things, but the great way that God touched my heart and healed me through those things. Yeah, that's great. Going back to your childhood. So how did that play out as you got into later in life, high school and making decisions on yeah. relationships and all of that? Yeah. <clears throat> so I, I heard something really interesting recently that trauma isn't what happened to you. It's what happens when you don't process the emotions from what happened to you. And that kind of set me free because, you know, I, it's it's a heavy thing to think everything that ever happened to me was trauma. no. Everything that ever happened to you that you stuffed away, ran from, numbed yourself over, that's what became the trauma, you know? So it's a very freeing message. But um, as I mentioned before, I didn't do much to process all of that. I lived a life of what I thought was having fun, but really I was just trying to numb it all. And then when I became a mother um, at the age of 17, I knew that that wasn't really the life I wanted to give my son. And so I kind of returned to my faith roots and began to seek God and wanted to live a better life, so to speak. I got married at 18 and um, I really went back to church at 18 years old. And I really wanted to be a better wife and mom than I thought I was on the road to becoming based on my past. And uh, several years into that, um, was really struggling. I still had a lot of unresolved anger. I actually carried a lot of shame as well over how I chose to deal with my life. Although at the time, if you asked me, um, you know, did you choose all that? I would have probably just said, you know, no, I didn't choose that. Like it just happened that way, you know, because I didn't understand. But I still carried a lot of shame from all those decisions. And I asked God to really show me at the age of 21, like what it means to serve him and to walk with him. And if he would show me how to do that, then I would. And so that really marked the beginning of my walk with God. And over the next 10 years, um, really, Kevin, what happened is I, I was on a very high high having this new um, decision, kind of that honeymoon phase with God where I'm going to do it his way and it's going to be wonderful. And the next 10 years was nothing but a complete unraveling. <laughs> mm -hmm. it, was, um, it was really an exposing of all of the things that were in me that I'd never dealt with. And I discovered several years into the marriage that my husband was an addict. And um, that's just a whole big matzo ball to talk about, like my response to that, what I thought was the right thing to do, which wasn't the right thing to do, which is enabling. And, and mm -hmm. how um, me thinking like, if I just zip my lip and pray for him, then he's going to suddenly miraculously wake up one morning sober and responsible and kind. 
And that never happened. And so instead, the the home became more of a pressure cooker. Because as you know, if you keep things inside, it's just a bomb waiting to go off. I heard a great quote the other day that said, um, if you are silent to keep the peace, you're only starting a war within yourself. And that's exactly what I did. I just had this war brewing inside of me and so much powerlessness and anger and frustration. And there were many times I knew that I was being lied to and many times that I knew that he was using when he said he wasn't, or he was places where he said he, you know, wasn't, um, times when he wasn't going to work and providing for the family. And I was left to figure out how to feed the kids or pay the bills. And, um, it just became this prison. And if you asked me then, I would have told you I'm in a prison of his making and I can't mm -hmm. get out of this prison until he lets me out. Yeah. And, um, it was probably about 12 years later. I, we, our kids got up into the teenage years and, you know, we had a large family, we were having more children, and I was just feeling more and more overwhelmed. And I wanted all of my children. I always longed for a big, happy family, but we got the big. <laughs> <laughs> we got the big definitely right out of the gates, but um, the happy didn't come until later. So, um, you know, I thought I just need to get some help and figure out what to do with my teens because it's just getting weird and ugly and really out of control. As you can imagine, being raised with an enabling mom, um, addicted dad, and, you know, total codependency, enabling dynamic with all the anger and the fear that goes with that. Our kids had plenty of anger too. Like we had anger and abundance in our household. So, and there was abuse and you know, it was just a pressure cooker. So I went to get help, but I, I always say my real confession is I went to get help so that I could help them. <clears throat> like, is that not the essence of codependency? <laughs> I went to counseling for my family. <laughs> like I will sit here and take in all the information and I'll bring it home to them to fix them. That's how much of a fixer I was. And, um, my therapist was just a brilliant woman. And in the very first appointment where I was like, help me help them, <laughs> she said, why don't we just talk about you? And this talk about me led to many, many, many discoveries um, and led to many epiphanies. And essentially, um, to nutshell it, she helped me to see that not only was I not in a prison of my own making, I was actually in a pit that I was helping dig. Yeah. And, um, but there was such good news in that, Kevin, because I call that the, the best worst day of my life. It was the best day of my life because I realized if I'm part of the problem, then I can do something about it. I was finally not powerless. Worst day of my life, though, because I realized I am like half responsible for this mess. So um, that was really, I guess, you know, that cliche, today's the first day of the rest of your life. Well, <laughs> that was the first day of the rest of my life. And I began to take ownership um, over my choices. And my therapist said to me over and over, um, your responsibility is to keep your side of the street clean. And she just kept pointing me to my side of the street and I'd get focused on everybody else's and she'd bring me back. And I realized that when I had a little work on my side of the street under my belt and I was making a little progress, it was getting cleaned up a little bit, something really bizarre happened. 
I would look in the mirror and not be totally disgusted with the person looking back at me. I actually started to feel kind of proud of myself. Mm -hmm. I actually started to feel confident. I started to feel like this is the kind of woman I want to be. I had no idea that cleaning up my side of the street, saying no where I once said yes, and not just for the sake of saying no. Let's, let's be honest. We don't just say no for the sake of saying no. I was saying yes to helping someone destroy his life mm-hmm. and destroy our home. And I was also doing that destruction. My new self was going to say no to things that helped destroy anything or anyone. To the best of my ability, I would say no to those things from now on. And I actually had a conversation with my husband and I said, you know, I really owe you an apology because my love has been selfish. And he was like, yeah, yeah, it really has. You know, <laughs> I mean, what husband doesn't want to hear that apology? What spouse doesn't want to hear that, right? And I said, it really has. I said, I've loved you in a way that um, made me feel like I had the best chances that you loved me back. Mm-hmm. I said, that's selfish love. What real love is supposed to do is do what's best for the other person, even if it's at my expense. Mm-hmm. And I said, so from now on, I'm going to love you that way. I'm going to do what's best for you, even if it's at my own expense. And what I mean by that is I'm no longer going to lie for you, cover up for you, enable you, keep your secrets, you know, help you <clears throat> clean up the messes you make from drinking and using, um, you know, but I'm also going to stay here and, um, and remain your wife and do my duties and keep working on myself and so forth. And, um, he did not like that talk. He said, I thought you said you were going to apologize. This doesn't sound like an apology. (laughs) And then he said something a little more drastic. He said, um, I'm not interested in your new brand of love. And right out of the gates, he rejected my love, my healthy love, you know, And I was really okay with that. I was prepared for that because I had such a deep conviction that that was what love was. And my Mm -hmm. job was to love in that way, even if it was not received. And that's what I meant by even if there's a cost to me. And there was a cost to me. The cost was rejection and the cost was a lot, a lot of friction and a lot of conflict in the home when I began to, you know, live by my new love and not help and not enable. And when I began, began to call the police and, and call for help when things weren't good and talk to pastors and talk to friends and family who could help not talk to everybody and anybody, mm-hmm. but just people who could help. Those who were called to be involved. Right. Um, part of the reason we, we struggled so long is we didn't have a team. You need a team when you are dealing with addiction, you need a, a good team, a circle of people around you who are all providing different things. Um, You know, and I was going it alone and so was he. And we were very misinformed. I thought that it was an expression of my faith to just trust God. But later when I had my revelation of real love, I saw in 1 Corinthians 13, which is called the love chapter, by the way. And one of the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not rejoice with unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. And another way of saying that is love does not help people be unrighteous and cover up with lies. (laughs) So there it was right in black and white. God saying to me, 
no, this is what love looks like. And I thought about, would God ever help us destroy our lives? Would God ever give us a helping hand to go to sin or to go to destruction? Never. It it defies everything about the gospel, everything about, you know, our faith. And his love is the love we're supposed to model our love after. So really challenging season, learning to love like that. I failed a lot. I fell down a lot. Um, And what that looked like for me was I'd get really upset and I'd yell and vent and, you know, we'd have an argument. And, um, and then later I would feel bad and I would apologize to God, apologize to my family um, and start over. And there was a lot of that. And um, that was many years ago to this day when I fall, you got to own it, take care of it, get back up and keep on going. Great. Well, thank you for bringing us through the whole, the whole journey. Uh, If you don't mind, let's go. I'm going to go back and just kind of hit a few things I noted as as we went, if um, sure, if that's good with you. Going back to that time in middle school, high school, where you're, were feeling very rejected, just like there's a lot of turmoil going on around you, and there was a split in your in your parents. Like, can you help us understand like who you were? Not necessarily just what was happening, but like who were you at that time? What was what are your gifts and talents that you even had at that time that you weren't even like aware of that you were maybe even ignoring? Well, that's such a great question. No one's ever asked me that question. Um, It's funny that you're asking that because since I have recovered in, in so many ways and grown in so many ways, I do look back on my, we'll call it my pre rebellion days and, or even my teen years. And I think all the things that I'm using now and that people could consider gifts in my life, were those present then? Was I using them then? Where were they? Were they dormant? And um, one of the most significant memories I have is, it's kind of funny, but when my parents were married and we'd go on a road trip, um, my dad would pass cars like in frustration and Long before there was road rage, there was my dad yelling at the driver that he was, you know, and um, I would literally cry in the back seat. And as we passed the car, I would be like trying to kindly wave to the driver as if they could hear my dad. Okay. (laughs) Like they couldn't hear him. I could hear him. And so, um, and I don't think my dad even knew that I, and I was just sad for the person. I was like, and I don't know why in my memory they were always elderly. So I felt like extra bad. But um, I looked back later and I'm like, that's empathy. That's mm-hmm. empathy. That's compassion. That's a mercy gift. And what I can tell you is when I began my rebellion out of anger, um, I had such a heart of offense. I was so, so offended and angry at my parents and the people around me that my heart became so hard that there were years I didn't even cry. Nothing could get me to shed a tear. So I'm crying over the car we're passing as a young girl. And as an adult woman in my 20s, I'm not shedding a tear, even at a sad movie. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what happens, though, when your heart is hard, you know. And then um, there were some other gifts. Like I just, I love to help people. Um, People say that, uh, you know, that I give good counsel. Well, when I was a teenager, actually, ironically, in an abusive relationship, doing drugs, getting pregnant, 
I was giving all my friends advice. <laughs> and it was darn good advice. I just didn't take any of it. <laughs> yeah. I was pretty much a hypocrite. But you could see there in my life, like that was in me and it was coming out of me. And my inner circle of friends called me Dr. Kim. I mean, how ironic is that? I, yeah, I already told you the boat I was in and they were calling me Dr. Kim. So um, those are just a couple examples of that. And um, one more that I'm thinking of is I always loved to read and write. I loved English. And um, <clears throat> when I was a senior, I wrote a persuasive essay. And um, I was the only one in the whole grade, not just the class, the whole grade that got an A. And it was it happened to be about abortion. And I was a teen mom at this time. I had a son at home. And so I had a whole different level of interest in the topic than most of my peers. Um, nowadays, they won't let you write papers about that in school. You know, they won't let you the kids write about hot button topics and controversial topics. But I'm so um, grateful I did that. And it was so affirming because I did all the research. I didn't know what the research was. I did all the research myself and read it all to find out what are the two sides of this argument. <clears throat> and um, anyway, fast forwarding till now, I write... Um, you know, I speak on a variety of different topics. I'm extremely passionate about um, God's heart for life, God's heart for his creation. And so there was another little inkling of what was to come in that class. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I'm hearing I'm hearing a lot of things that like the background is there's an I'm assuming that like I think you even said this earlier on that there was enablement in your in your your family growing up and then obviously there was a separation um but there was addiction there uh do you feel like some of like the anger and stuff of that uh things like that were coming from or resulted in maybe even some own of your own addictive type behavior i mean when you say when you say that doing the drugs and and doing the alcohol was that like do you feel like that was an addiction or was that just like acting out? Um, I would call it an addiction because um, I really believe that had God not intervened in my life, I, w I would have struggled for the rest of my days with it. I really do. Because if you had told me just to stop, I wouldn't have been able to. I, mm. I would have said to you, I'm sorry, I can't. You know, that would have been my response probably if I were being honest. Um, but I think to answer your question, um, you know, if some of these things were my own addictive behaviors and or my own, yeah, absolutely. And here's here's kind of the revelation I've had much more recently. Um, addiction, abuse, you know, all these things that we do that destroy ourselves and other people, they're not actually the problem, they're the symptom. And underneath all of that, really, it can all be traced back to one word, and that's shame. That we form addictions and we form these destructive behaviors either to numb ourselves from shame or to act that shame out on somebody else because nobody can stand up under the weight of shame. It's so heavy. And I believe that um, there was a real shame that came along with that divorce, not just for me, but my mom, my sister's um, it changed our income bracket. We suddenly had to deal with being impoverished and the shame that comes along with that. 
And if I were being totally honest, I would say that all of my anger was probably at the shame that was heaped upon me that I never asked for and didn't know what to do with. Yeah. Your parents having, I mean, it's just, it's so tough. I, I haven't been through this, but I, I obviously, um, in my own marriage, we had, we had our own conflicts. And as you know, Jamie was enabling me in a lot of ways. And I think that to a certain extent, I got to the point of understanding just how connected our kids were and witnessing their behavior to the way that the conflict that was happening between us. So I could imagine to a certain extent, maybe you can help me even understand more, you know, the hurt that happens when your parents separate and, um, you know, everything that's happening around that let alone the shame, right? Like the shame um, and how it's intertwined with that hurt and that wound. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of shame around the divorce because my mom really did not want the divorce and um, she really kind of resisted it. And so like when it went through and it was final, it was, it was almost like she lost, you know, like she lost this battle against this, things she didn't want. And so there was shame with that. But then, you know, also, um, I think when my mom had to go to work and she had been a stay at home mom and, um, and then my dad's presence was, um, you know, much less in our lives, there was this sense of abandonment, even though my dad still loved his daughters, my mom still loved her daughters when they're not physically present. That is, um, you know, that can leave an abandonment wound. And I think that that was really the core of the shame that I carried. I read a beautiful book called Captivating once, and the author Lisa Eldridge says that every woman has an, an intrinsic question that she's pursuing the answer for. And it's the same question for every woman. And that question is, am I worth fighting for? And essentially, my second half of my childhood, the answer was no, you're not. It was just by my perception. Okay. So what I perceived was, no, I'm not worth fighting for. I don't see anyone fighting for me. And then when I had my first real serious relationship, he became abusive. And then that I'm not worth fighting for lie was reinforced. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that, isn't that how it goes? We can perceive something and then it's reinforced over and over because actually our subconscious attracts Mm -hmm. that very thing, you know, things we're believing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just crazy. And so, um, yeah, I think that shame that I carried and, and, and it angered me that I wasn't worth fighting for that. Nobody was saying you are valuable and you are worthy. Um, so I acted all of that out in a lot of self-destructive behavior. I like to say that I destroyed myself to teach my parents a lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't work that way though. (laughs) Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, so you mentioned Lisa. I think I think you said Lisa Eldridge. Uh, oh, did I say Lisa Stacy Eldridge? Is uh, I'm what sorry I meant to say. I don't know what I, I don't know what you said. I I, <laughs> I have struggle with names. I have to really work on them, like to to get them. But yes, um, that's about the tenth time that Eldridge name has been mentioned on this podcast because I talked a lot about John's book. Um, and I I'm, Wild at Heart. Yes, and I'm I'm yeah, thankful for read that one too. You bringing out the uh, the the captivating side. I haven't read that that book, but um, that's cool. 
the, yeah. to hear it from you. So, all right. So going into now your marriage and like, how did the, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know how the story ended there. <laughs> well, um, I always kind of preface that answer with this. My story isn't going to be everybody else's story. And what I tell women or men, if you've been an enabler and you have an addicted spouse or addicted child or addicted loved one, whatever, um, you have a 50-50 shot, mm -hmm. you know, of them choosing to get sober. But the only way that they might even make the choice is if you stop enabling. So once you stop, you know, the that, I guess, putting the gasoline in that vehicle for them, then mm -hmm. they are faced with a decision. And that's where your 50-50 odds come in. And when I found that out, that like, if I stop putting the fuel in this tank, that like, there's a 50% chance I might have a marriage and I might have a, a great husband. I was like, I'm, I'm rolling these dice. These are the best odds I've ever had since I married the guy, <laughs> you know? And so um, I rolled those dice. And what happened for me is that as I got stronger and healthier, he unraveled further. And um, the more in control of my own life I was, the more out of control he became. And in 2007, so we got married in 1989, in 2007, um, the year of our 18th anniversary, um, he, it, the whole, it had been a downward spiral for quite some time. And basically our family as we knew it and the marriage came to an end in one evening when he got really, really drunk when I wasn't home and he became extremely violent with two of our children. And he was arrested that evening and charged with felonies and removed from our home. And after that, the criminal court put in place a no contact order. Then when we went to family court for the divorce, they, um, put in an order for no visitation without supervision. And so he really has not been present in my children's lives since 2007. He has not been present in my life at all. I had a restraining order for years. You know, it was a very, very traumatic and drastic mm -hmm. ending to a yeah. long, painful journey. Well, as hard as a message that is to hear, I think that it's important to, you know, for all of us to just consider the, I mean, I, I go back to when Jamie and I had some of our conversations where it could have easily been divorced, you know, because she had made the same decision for me. And she also said something very similar to you that you mentioned earlier, which was, I'm here, you know, I'm, I'm not leaving the marriage. Uh, but I, at first I didn't get it, you know, I was just like what you're describing. And I think mostly looking back on that from my standpoint, it was like I was completely blind to what the truth is in certain areas of my life. And so at that point, you know, you're like, well, that's cool that you're getting help, but uh, I don't think I'm a problem, right? Or whatever, right? Like, so yeah. I, I think I, I did know I was a problem, but I didn't, you know, it was, it was all the justifications of right. how I'm well, I'm working on it or I've gotten victory in this area or whatever. Right. And so, uh, I think about what you're saying and applying it to me and just being, yeah, I mean, I like what you've said about the 50, 50, because I, there was some times where I'm sitting there 
talking to Jamie and I'm like, I don't know if the, if I do want this. And then, mm. you know, you'd, you'd have the thoughts go through your head of, okay, so am I willing to quantify that inner voice? You know, am I willing to actually, is that what I want? Is just a life by myself with a lot different circumstances? Um, yeah. Am I willing to walk away from what Jamie is brought to my life? Uh, am I willing to not be there for my kids? Uh, you know, for at least not as much as I am, although I, I wasn't as present as I needed to be at the time, but still, you know, just thinking about just not even being in, around in their lives now. Right. The not quality home of to them at night. Yeah. The, the quality of, uh, it wasn't really about the quality of my interaction with them, but, uh, later it became that way, but yeah, I can totally enter into what you're talking about. And, and I, you know, have obviously, I think hopefully everyone can understand that the person that's locked up in this blindness you know, it, I, I, I feel very fortunate to have met a lot of people that helped me. You know, uh, my coach, my other emotional healers um, that were, that God gave me to go through that. And, and I feel like a lot of, a lot of addicts are similar to your, your ex, uh, where they're afraid yes. of making a change and they're coming from a, a place where they don't really want to address the underlying hurt, whatever it's been shoved down so much and they're not aware of it. They don't want to become aware. They want to, they're afraid of becoming aware again of what caused all this. And so, yeah, the, the yeah. love equation that you talked about earlier, it's like, Oh no, I don't, I don't actually want to embrace real love because I have all these attachments in my past that are based on, what I think love is yeah. and it has to do with my wife or whoever it is in my life doing this for me and this for me and right. And, mm -hmm. and then I can create attachments to them and I can uh, control them or whatever, right. Whatever the garbage is that's in our head. Um, but yeah, there's, I just celebrate what you're saying here that even though the ending wasn't what you wanted, that it was, it is though the ending because that person who maybe didn't change yet, uh, we have to live with our consequences yep. and the choices that we choose. And, you know, I think this, this is one of the most important lessons I learned in loving someone with a severe addiction. I really believed for many years, my denial ran as deep as his. And I believe that, like I said, if he just got sober, that we'd be so happy. And my therapist said to me once, she said, you know, um, Kim, she said, alcoholism is only, she said, the disease itself is only 5% liquid. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you can pour the alcohol down the drain and never drink it again, but you only solved 5% of the problem. And I was like, what's the other 95%? This is not encouraging. <laughs> and she said, the other 95% is the ism. So you have the alcohol and then you have the ism. And she said the ism yeah. is all those coping skills. The only coping skills the addict has ever known in most cases. And you have a person who stopped emotionally maturing when they began using. 
And so she said, what you get when you pour out the alcohol is you get the person all those years ago. You know, she said, you can't pour out selfishness. You can't pour out immaturity. You can't pour out terrible coping skills, bad communication skills. Like, and I sat there going, oh my gosh, if he got sober, it would take us 20 years to be happy. (laughs) I mean, but really, you know, and and when I help women who are in the same boat I am, that's that's an important message because we have to be realistic. The alcohol is only 5% of the problem. What about all the ism? I, I'm still working on getting the ism out of me. Mm-hmm. And it's been a several yeah. decades, you know? And so um, it's a real thing that we need to consider. We need to wake up and get out of denial and stop thinking that just having somebody pour out their alcohol and go to AA meetings is going to fix our happiness. No, our happiness is an inside job. You can get happy wherever you are and whatever you're doing if you choose to do a lot of hard things, but good things. Yeah, we we are all fortunate to be in a, whatever our circumstance, to be able to have joy regardless of what we think Yep. Or believe, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it does take some work to uh, to acknowledge what we think and believe, and how it's not in line with the truth. Yeah, you know. So yeah, I definitely agree. So how how has this changed your family and your kids? Oh, I don't know if that if that's uh, you know measurable, but <laughs> obviously significantly. There was a, a season there where um, when I filed for divorce. I had one child who was an adult. I had a son who was 19. And then I had 10 more children at home under the age of 17. So um, from 17 down to 18 months when I became a single mom in all oh, the ages. Okay, so hold on. I don't know if I can count. So is that 10, 12? 11. Children? Yeah. 11. I had 11 okay. children. Yep. Um, so I had my son in high school and then I had 10 more children in the marriage. And, um, and so, wow, just hold on a second, (laughs) 11 children and a relationship where you didn't have the support as you were bearing all those children. I'm guessing there was not as much support as could have been, let's say. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And, um, the earlier years were a little better and more stable, but it got pretty dicey at the end there. And, um, yeah, I definitely carried the brunt of the responsibilities and, Um, you know, one of the things I was doing at the end of the marriage was trying to shift those responsibilities back over to him, not all of them, but to, to make it more of a um, partnership, you know, and that was met with a lot of resistance as well. But, um, you know, the kids, the older kids came to me and after I filed for the divorce and they just said, what took so long, mom, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and I said, you know, I just wanted to do everything I thought I could do. I wanted to just give it the fairest, best shake. And yeah, I probably hung in there way too long. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But I can say, I did everything and a little bit more (laughs) to make that marriage work. Um, And so then, you know, for the next couple of years, they were raised by a single mom with that many siblings. And I wasn't getting child support. Remember, he went to prison, you know. And so um, I was scraping pennies together, sometimes working up to five jobs to pay the bills. And 
that whole season of, I think of all of our lives as such a blur. It's especially a blur for me. And then in 2011, um, I got remarried and uh, my second husband and I moved to another community. So we moved the kids um, out of that community and out of our home that all of that happened in. And um, and we've kind of started anew. So um, how has it affected them? I mean, they have a stepdad and a stepbrother. That's where my number 12 child comes in. I didn't have to birth that one. Okay. I call okay. him my bonus child. And I'm like, you yeah. are the easiest one. <laughs> you, I got you when you, you were 11. That. <laughs> 11, you deserve a bonus. <laughs> yes, thank you. After 11. Thank you. But um, anyway, yeah, the kids have really, I mean, gosh, we've just been through it. And um, what I'm learning now are really those generational patterns of codependency, addiction, um, how we truly attach and detach in relationship is either really healthy or really toxic. And, mm-hmm. um, and, my oldest son is now 34 and of our 12 children, 10 of them are adults and um, one is married to our parents. So, you know, we're starting to see, you know, what that, that it all looks like for our kids to grow up and start their own families. And I'm just seeing really Kevin, and this isn't meant to discourage anybody, but the work is never done. The work of recovery and, um, and the work of healing is never done. And I think that, you know, part of why I've worked so hard on myself is because I learned that more is taught than are caught than taught and that kids learn most by what their parents model. And so I made such a concerted effort and a deliberate decision that for the rest of my days, I will model to my children something that is different from what they saw in the past, something that offers them a new path and new hope, but also understanding these things take time. You know, these things don't just happen overnight. Um, But I've really seen that, you know, to turn the tide in my family, I've had to get deep in my own self-work. And I recently was speaking with my counselor, I have wonderful counselors, even still to this day. And um, he said to me, um, you know, you have the small task of of undoing generations of toxic patterns. <laughs> and he goes, but you can do it. <laughs> I mean, it was like bad news, good news. You know, you have this daunting task, but you can do it. And he said, but you're not going to do it today. He said, let's make this plan your five to 10 year plan. And he began to talk to me about how to have different conversations with my kids than we've ever had before. And he said, just plan on doing this for the next five or 10 years. And, you know, somebody out there needs to hear that, that like, take the pressure off yourself. You're not going to turn this, you know, uh, Titanic around in five minutes. It just does not work like that. Um, But also Mm -hmm. there's so much hope and there's so much healing to be had. Yeah, I, I think that one, there's a couple of thoughts that come to mind around what you're saying and the generational stuff. And just like, for some reason, we spiritually and emotionally don't want to transcend we fear transcending our parents in other words getting past some of their struggles we want to like more we like to grab a hold of them and bring them along Mm. you know and like change their life and then somehow that's going to affect us but i think that it's good to just get to the point where we allow ourselves to be 
disconnected, you know, like, um, they are, they were the best that they could be when we were growing up and they are what they're choosing today. And we have to acknowledge where we are and that, uh, what is possible for us. Right. And that it's not, I'm not going to be limited by, and I, I think as all parents, we want that from our kids. It's just, it, we want them to go further than than uh, than we have. Not necessarily that we're keeping score, right. but like when they do better than us in an area, it's like, well, that's the point. Like yes. generationally, we're lifting each other up. And so, but I, as a as a as a child or as a uh, an adult who has worked through some of the issues that I feel like were part of my childhood, I I understand also that it's like I'm holding myself back. I'm like calling, you know, my parents or whatever and trying to get them to come along. And that's not really serving them either. So just having that ability, like it says in in the Bible, to just leave and to cleave to your spouse or or whoever God has given you and in your journey to um, really embrace that and to step into it. So I could see, and, and also just that you having gone through what you've gone through, just trusting that the time where that person comes back into your life, whether it's your your parent or whether it's your child, that you can be available to them yes. at that moment when they need something, when when they're when they've acknowledged that hey, I I need some help, that you could be there for them. And like for me, a lot of times when I was first coming out of addiction, I was thinking well, how can I make up, make this up to my kids that I wasn't present? Well, all it takes is one or two times where I'm absolutely present for them. And they, 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 and it's like, wow, there's a difference here in dad. And then everything changes. It's like, we, we feel like sometimes we have to pay down that debt or do all these things to fix things. And, and really it's just being there. Yeah. That makes a difference. Yeah. So true. Yeah, that's good. All right. Well, thank you again for sharing the story. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on the show, Kevin. I really enjoyed it. Good luck with all of your uh, superpowers that you've developed. (laughs) Thank you. I think uh, dependence on God is my number one superpower because I wouldn't be able to do any of the other things. Yeah, exactly. I believe that any of us that go through the struggle, we can choose the 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 benefits of that yes, right like our agreed. choices will agreed. bring the benefits along so all right well thank you very much for your time and i'll just one little note for the peop- for the listeners we have recently discovered that uh, and most people know this but you know we're a little slow sometimes um that you can rate the podcast and so that's a good way for us to know if we're reaching people if we're giving you what you're looking for if you like what we're doing Rate the podcast on Apple, Spotify. That will help us out, at least from the standpoint of knowing that we're reaching our audience. Thank you for tuning in. And to stay in touch, email us at info at businessaddictspodcast.com.